The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So today's day long is about how to be your own teacher. How to find our own way with this practice, recognizing that we do need teachers, but they're not always available every time we sit, right? They're not always there when we're practicing at home. So how can we support ourselves? Not negating the value of teachers, not negating the value of talking to other people, but how can we support ourselves? There's a number of different ways we can approach this. And one, of course, is to look if, if we're going to be a teacher, well, what, t- what do we know about teachers? And one, of course, is the Buddha, who had a teaching career of 40 years, 45 years, a long time, most of his adult life. So how was he as a teacher? What did he um, do? How did he behave? How did he support others? How did he help others find a way to greater peace, greater freedom, awakening, enlightenment, the ending of suffering? How did he help them? And one thing that, um, in addition to like all these talks, for those of you who are familiar with this, the... Um, the discourses that are preserved from the life of the Buddha, you know, it's a, you know, it's like this. It's a whole bookshelf full of tons. It's a lot, right? It's not just a slim volume that you can memorize and look at. It's His teachings are tremendous. For me, I find a lot of kind of delight uh, reading, at, reading them and looking at them. But one theme that uh, comes through all these readings is this idea of compassion, this is a primary way in which the Buddha cared for those his followers, the way that he took care of those his disciples. That is, with compassion, with a care, with um, a heart that wished for them to end their suffering. With no, not wanting anything um, ill toward to happen towards anybody, but wanting them to find the freedom that he knew for himself was possible. So there's a, at the end of some of his teachings, not all of them, at the end of some of them there's this expression where the Buddha, after he gives a a talk uh, to some of his followers, he says, what should be done for his followers out of compassion by a teacher who seeks their welfare and has compassion for them, that I have done for you. These are these roots of trees, these empty huts. Meditate. Do not delay, otherwise you might regret it later. So his idea like, okay, you know, this is, there, my, I've given you some instructions. He often went back to, okay, go meditate, which we can interpret as not meditate. We have some formal meditation practices, but also as a way to uh, reflect on the teachings that the person had just heard, to pay some attention to, to 
um, memorize them if they can. But to spend some quiet time after just hearing some teachings. So we can think of, when we think of the Buddha as a teacher, we can think of him as being compassionate. Which also means that the Buddha would treat us differently than we treat ourselves in the way in that we so much have this inner critic that is not compassionate. We so much have this self-critical voice, almost like like this sub-personality, this voice inside of us that's constantly putting us down or belittling belittling us or maybe this voice of negativity or self-judgment or blaming ourselves or nagging at us or having this sense of shame for what we are or the shame for how we are maybe it's harsh maybe this voice is harsh so we might have this an inner climate that arises sometimes maybe sometimes it's strong sometimes it's not strong maybe it's obvious maybe it's subtle in which this climate of uh, harshness, that it's, but it's a, a dynamic, a constellation of all kinds of different thoughts and feelings and approaches and attitudes that is not compassionate. And when this dynamic is strong and we're believing it, these two things have to happen, it has to be dynamic, and we have to believe it, you know, give it heed, pay attention to it, or give enough attention to it. There's often a feeling of inadequacy. There's often a feeling of not being enough, somehow. What we're doing isn't enough, how we're doing it isn't quite right, and feeling I'm not worthy, I can't do it. There is so much pain caught up in this structure, in this dynamic, that many of us have. It wrecks some havoc on our inner life, which spills out into our outer life too. Some people feel like they're the only ones who have this self-critical voice, who have this inner critic inside. I know that there were times on some of these long retreats that I was on that I fell into this trap, like, I can't do this. Everybody else can do it. Look, they're sitting quietly. They're probably already awakened, and I'm sitting here struggling or something like this. It wasn't until I started to work with and pay attention to this inner critic that I saw it for what it was. They're just thoughts that arise and pass away. They're just ideas that arise and pass away. And I'll talk some more about this. But I'm willing to bet that probably all meditators at some time have had this feeling, this self-critical voice, this kind of self-condemnation or this feeling of inadequacy. And I'll also say that when I have practice discussions with uh, people and they're sharing with their practice and are looking for some guidance, some help with their uh, practice, 
this is the number one theme. We all, I shouldn't say we all have this, but it's very common. We shouldn't think that we're the only ones. That alone might be helpful to think that this is part of kind of our Western culture of how it is today. It's something that we've inherited from our family systems, from our educational system, from society at large, this idea that you have to be more, you have to be more. It's not quite good enough. It's not quite good enough. So it's understandable that we have it. It's legitimate that it arises. There's causes and conditions for it to arise. But one of the impacts of having this inner critic voice is that then there's a feeling of should, quote-unquote, that slips into practice. This idea of, I should meditate. I should meditate more. I should be able to get concentrated. I should be able to tame this mind of mine. I should be, have more loving kindness. I should have more compassion. I should definitely meditate more. <laughs> I should go on retreat. I should practice in daily life more. Right? The, the list is unending. Unending. Chances are this shows up in many areas of our lives, not just in meditation. So this idea of having a should creates a certain type of pressure, a certain type of tightness. And this pressure or this tightness has quite a, has a lot of effects. It somehow like inhibits or shuts down or cramps or blocks or just generally gets in the way. Or maybe this uh, like squeezes the juice out of or squeezes the joy, squeezes the happiness out of our meditation practice. There can be joy, there can be happiness, there can be well-being. It's not there all the time. I'm not going to sit up here and say, oh yeah, meditating's great. I've had my share of difficult experiences on the cushion. I've had my share of sitting there with tears, having lots of fear, having lots of anger, having lots of emotions. I wasn't even sure what they were. But meditation should also have, also at times, some lightness, some happiness, some gladness, some joy. And having a strong sense of should kind of like squeezes that out, pushes it away. And then our practice can become dry or brittle or maybe it's, um, you know, it just starts to feel like an obligation. And sometimes meditation is a little bit of an obligation in the sense that we don't always want to. doesn't mean that we will always be skipping along merrily, thinking like, oh great, I'm going to meditate. It's not always that way. I just want to point out that sometimes we're a little bit out of balance and tilting towards, I should, I should meditate, I should be having these experiences, I should this, I should that. 
So not only does having these shoulds, this, uh, that comes from the self-critical voice, kind of sap some of the lightness and happiness and joy out of the practice, but it also can get in the way of our asking deep questions. Because we don't feel maybe capable to hear the answers, to ask these deep questions or what's most important to me? What are my aspirations? How do I want to live my life? What are my values? So having this pressure from shoulds doesn't allow the space, so to speak, the freedom to ask ourselves these questions with, certain, with enough confidence that we can ask them. So many of you know that the first noble truth of the Buddha, which there's four noble truths, the first one, very simply, we could state it as there is suffering. There is difficulty. There is dissatisfaction. There is stress. If we don't somehow keep this in mind or really understand this, then when we do encounter difficulties, when we do encounter things that are difficult, when we do encounter things that are uncomfortable, then this self-critical voice so rarely gets activated. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. I should do X, Y, and Z. I'm not enough because of A, B, or C. So instead of asking the question when there's difficulties when there's uncomfortableness, when there's stress, when instead of asking the question of what's underlying this? Why has this arisen now? What's, what's behind this difficulty, this suffering, this stress? Instead of asking that question, when we're filled with the self-critical voice that is really loud, we ask, am I doing this right And then usually the answer is no. (laughs) So instead of asking a question that could help lead us towards freedom, instead of asking ourselves a question that can help us find a way, we ask a question that somehow just gets us mired in some of this self-critical voice and this sense of things that we should be doing. So in a minute, I'll talk a little bit about how we can work with the self-critical voice. But if we can, if we can somehow soften it a little bit, then maybe we can change the question that gets asked. This is a subtle question. It's not obvious necessarily. But when difficulties arise, and they will arise, I hate to say this, but it's absolutely true. (laughs) They will arise, uncomfortableness, difficulties, stress, dissatisfaction instead of asking this question of 
Am I doing it right? What's wrong with me? We could ask this question, how am I? How am I? Just in a, a way of like a voice of kindness. What's, what's going on? How, how are you? So a voice of kindness and care rather than a voice that's, you know, yelling demands you should be doing this or that. The question is, was like, what would be helpful now? In some ways, in some ways, a big part of meditation practice and Buddhist practice is about this very thing right here. We so often are concerned with ourselves. Of course we're concerned with ourselves because we're uncomfortable. We have suffering, we have stress. And so much of uh, Buddhist practice is to help soften that in such a way that the self-concern doesn't uh, preclude, doesn't get in the way of seeing the bigger picture, doesn't get in the way of our finding freedom. And the more we can find freedom, the less we have this need to, I'm going like this, to kind of like constrict around a self that we have to protect and prop up and bolster, make sure it looks good, all these types of things. So it's possible to get into this positive feedback loop instead of going down kind of this negative one filled with shoulds and pressure. We can say like, what's needed now? What's what's happening? Which then can, just that little bit of space that allows that question to happen, allows something new to happen, a new unfolding. I'm going to return to this theme about the self-critical voice throughout the day because it's so easy when we're thinking about uh, how to be your own teacher. There might be for us this quiet subtext, like, okay, how can I beat myself up and get it so I do these things I'm supposed to be doing or something, right? And some of the things that I talk about, I'm going to talk about, it would be so easy for this self-critical voice to kind of rear its head and for us to get activated by it. So I'll try to remind us throughout the day so that we don't fall prey to it. Or let's say this, when we fall prey to it, that we can bring to mind some of the things that we're talking about and some of the practices that we have. So that while it's there, we don't, aren't as swayed by its authority that we don't believe it as wholeheartedly, perhaps. So what's one, what's are some ways to work with this, with the inner critic? Loving kindness practice. Just cultivating a heart that has friendliness that has goodwill, that isn't harsh, that isn't condemning, isn't hypercritical. 
And the beautiful thing about loving-kindness practice, in my view, is that it works. When I'm saying works, I mean that it can change the patterns of our minds, can change some of the patterns of our hearts, or the way that we respond both to our self-critical voice as well as to other things in the world. And then kindness practice works even if we start where it's easy. Even if we start with where, with those with whom we already love. Where it's easy to feel a sense of goodwill and respect, care, warmth. I mean, kindness practice is about cultivating something that we already have. It's not about manufacturing something that we've never experienced before. It's just about developing and cultivating warmth and care that we all have. So just in general, developing a loving-kindness practice really can help with this self-critical voice. Very often the benefits, quote-unquote, of loving-kindness practice isn't necessarily felt that moment when we're doing it. Sometimes it is. But sometimes it's felt when we have these surprising little voices that say, ah, you idiot, why did you do that? And another voice, it's okay, sweetheart. (laughs) It just kind of pops up. So maybe we still have that self-critical voice, but then we have another one that kind of counteracts it or um, shows us that there's another way to respond. So I'm going to invite us to do some loving-kindness practice. Maybe we'll uh, refer to that uh, throughout the day. So the way that I teach loving-kindness, there's a number of different ways. And the way that I teach it is with um, that there are three elements. For those of you who have been to a happy hour that I teach on Wednesdays, um, this is consistent with how I teach it there. I should say on happy hours, also um, Nikki Murgafori and I alternate. So she teaches, you know, sometimes a different styles. And so between the two of us, you'll get a range of different ways of practicing with loving kindness. You can either come on Wednesdays or, of course, you know, they're recorded. You can listen to them too. But for today, I'm going to emphasize this, that there are three elements. The first is to bring to mind someone for whom you'd like to extend loving kindness you'd like to share loving kindness you'd like to cultivate loving kindness with this individual I'm saying individual because there may be somebody in our lives or somebody who has been in our lives for whom that it's, it's so easy to feel love and care and warmth towards it's just natural when we bring this person to mind. And it's best if we have an uncomplicated relationship with this person. That may mean that you don't actually know them very well, that you don't have an intimate relationship. It may mean that. So a lot of people choose um, spiritual leaders or 
teachers that have benefited them, that have somehow, somehow had a big impact on them, have really helped and supported them. And there's a feeling of gratitude and appreciation and warmth and love. If that feels complicated, you can always use where it's easy. Some people use puppies, kittens, babies. These little uh, squirrels that like that jump around with these long tails. I just think they're so cute. And sometimes uh, I have a I have a screensaver on my um, I guess it's my desktop on my computer, just to kind of support loving kindness. But uh, it's for baby animals. So <laughs> sometimes these things just show up on my computer. They're like so cute. Uh, this morning it was these little chicks. Uh, like probably little chickens, I guess. And they're yellow and fluffy. And they're like so, I don't know, they're just endearing, right? Many of you are smiling, right? When you're thinking about this. So that, just where the loving kind of, the sense of warmth comes easily, that's where we want to start. That's where we want to start. And we're just going to spend a little time working with that. So that's the first element, to bring to mind um, somewhere... I'm sorry, someone or some being, a lovable being with whom it's easy to feel loving kindness, care, warmth, respect, benevolence, goodwill. You can choose any words that make sense to you. The second element in loving kindness practice is to use the sensations in your body to support you. It might be, it's not always the case, it might be that when you're developing loving kindness, there's a little bit of openness in the heart, a little bit of warmth maybe in the heart center. Maybe there's some softness in the belly. Maybe there's a sense of an inner smile. Maybe there's an actual smile. It's different for different people. It may be obvious. It may not be obvious. It may be really subtle. And it may not be there at all. It's perfectly fine. Any of those three, nothing in particular, something really subtle and small, something obvious. Sensations in the body, we can use them to support us. And then the third element is we repeat phrases. Just like in... uh, when we're doing mindfulness, mindfulness of the sensations of breathing, we use the breath as an anchor, and then when the mind wanders, we just come back to the sensations of breathing. Then the mind wanders, we come back to the sensations of breathing. The mind wanders, and we come back, right? We do this a hundred bazillion, quadrillion times, right? It's the same thing with loving kindness practice, except instead of the sensations of breathing, we come back to the phrases. So we're using the phrases as kind of an anchor that reminds us and maybe conditions our heart and mind to the cultivation of loving kindness, goodwill, and warmth. So in this guided meditation that I'm going to lead us through, we're going to start where it's easy, the lovable being. And then we're going to expand it to include ourselves. For some people, not everybody, for some people, for many people, this including it, expanding it to include it for ourselves is not as easy. 
is not as straightforward as to do it for others. And if so, can maybe you can have some kindness for yourself, but it's difficult to do that. If you feel like you're just not, doesn't feel like the right time to do that, the right thing to do, that's okay. Just stay where it's easy. Stay where it, to have a, this idea of a lovable being without getting all tripped up and having that self-critical voice get really loud if even when we go to um, loving kindness for ourselves. So you've been sitting for some time now. I'm going to suggest that we just... Yes, Sylvie, do you, would you like to use a microphone? Can, can we send a microphone over here or... Yeah, so when you were talking about the three elements, um, I've been to your happy, happy hours and I listen on, on the internet, but just today something new popped up, so I wanted to ask. So the first one and the third one, I can see that um, you know I'm taking an action, I'm bringing someone to mind. Number three, I'm saying phrases. The second one, when you were saying the... <coughs> talking about the bodily uh, sensation. For me, it's not something I'm doing. It's more something that I just observe. Maybe it comes, maybe it doesn't. So it felt that um, the agency is only in the one and three. Can you elaborate on yeah. on the number two? Yeah, so I would say the number two, if we're going to use kind of the link, link the framing and the language that you're using. I would say number two is to incline the mind towards noticing what is our physical experience. So often we're out here just in our minds, and if we're doing loving-kindness practice, maybe we're there. But number two, the second one, is just to periodically incline the mind towards our bodily experience. So I'm going to suggest that we stand up just uh, briefly and maybe shake out the body. A big part about loving-kindness practice, right, is that we not be sitting in physical pain. It's hard to have good sense of goodwill if we're in pain. And you're welcome to get, you know, any collection of cushions that you'd like. And um, you're welcome to lie down. Some people uh, like to do loving-kindness practice lying down as a way it helps them relax and open up or something like this. If you are going to lie down, I recommend that you um, often we bend our arms so that um, like so that if I'm lying down so that uh, my hand is like pointing towards the ceiling so that if you're starting to fall asleep your arm will fall and hopefully it'll wake you up. So it's a way, it's like a little bell like oh okay. And then the second thing, it takes a little bit of energy to keep that arm up. So um, that maybe that little bit of energy is enough to kind of keep one awake. <laughs> 